Welcome back to Texas Podcast and Blast, and here we are in the very uh, last week of September, and you're saying, hey man, what happened to the whole month of September? We started out week one with episode one with Captain Glenn Ging, and uh, you might have been paying attention, we had a little bit of a hurricane, category one named Nicholas, come ashore in Matagorda County. We had till season, and life just sometimes gets in the way of podcasts, but we're excited to be here today to kick off uh, once again uh, this the second season with our episode two, and a good friend of mine, Clint Johnson, is here with us today. Clint, thanks for, thanks for being on the show, man. Man, I appreciate you having me. Well, I know we've been talking about this since last spring, but uh, school got started, and we're finally going to sit down and we're going to talk about a really cool thing that you get to mess with every day. You know, and so yes. just kind of introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do. All right. Well, I'm Clint Johnson. I'm an ag teacher at Van Vleck High School, and uh, you know at Van Vleck we've got a really interesting thing going on there. That's our meat processing lab where we teach kids uh, everything about the meat processing world and and how all that works. You know, and, and let's just be uh, full disclosure here. I myself went through this program and graduated in 1994. Clint, you went through the same program, and a student you graduated in 2005. 2005, yes. And so. We're going to be talking from the experiences we had, and as well as what you're teaching kids. My son's in the program, and so uh, this thing started in 1976, if we have our notes correct. Is that right? Yes, sir. And, you know, this idea, and we want people to understand from the get-go, it is a full processing slaughterhouse from we walk them in the back, and we can have it wrapped up in butcher paper, or now vacuum sealed, going out yep. in their cooler in the front. Yeah, that's that's what I normally tell people is uh, animals walk in alive and they leave in a package. Yep, and this is obviously teacher-led but student-driven. Yes, sir, yes, sir. It doesn't take, you know, obviously at the beginning of the year I'll have to do a lot to kind of show the kids and, and get them going. And then by the end of the year, and, and your son is one of them, uh, he started with me last year, and by the end of the year I could, well, I could roll a half a calf in there and say, Wade, get after it, and... Sure. You know, he could do the whole thing. And the just the building itself, how it's kind of set up, in the, the back of the building we have a holding pen, so when the, the live animals are delivered, there's a place to secure them. Uh, the kill floor is what we call it. Is there a more technical room? It's, it's still the kill floor. Actually, it got even more technical now that we did the renovations last year. They put a big old sign on it that says kill floor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this room uh, consists of a squeeze chute in one corner where the animals are led through a uh, just a door that they can be secured before they're uh, dispatched. And then there's a, a, a sunken pit in the middle of the concrete. I mean, am I describing this well? Yeah, yes, sir, yes, sir. Um, so, yeah, so the way it works is we we do that, and, and just like you would see at any commercial butchering operation, those animals come in, and we have a captive bolt gun, so it's a very safe way of dispatching those animals. You see, we, we grew up with a single-shot bolt-action twenty two. That's what I've, we used. I've heard the stories. <laughs> yes, sir. So we have the, the new, very safe captive bolt gun. That way there's no accidents or right. ricochets or right. anything like that. It uses a 25 caliber blank in the back of the gun, and that rod goes into the brain of that animal and then back into the gun. Sure. And, and so the room itself, uh, and we'll talk about that process in a little more depth here shortly, but uh, so there's, there's a place to, to bleed them out, to start the skinning process, and there's a, 
uh, a winch and a rail system that once the carcass is divided and ready to move into the cooler, the rail system goes all the way through the walk-in cooler and will continue on where you can slide it all the way into the processing room, which is the larger room in the facility. Yep. So we get them, we get them dressed and split and hung in that cooler. And then if, you know, for the example of like a steer and one thing that I like that we can do because we are still kind of so small and we mm-hmm. don't do so many is that we do a full, you know, I'll do a full 21 day dry age on those steer carcasses. Mm. And, and man, you just talk about the quality of that meat is, oh. is so much better than anything you can get out of HEB or anything like that. Sure. And then in the, in the facility, is the walk-in freezer and the walk-in cooler the same size, or is the freezer a bit smaller? The freezer's a little bit smaller. Okay, so there are two commercial-grade walk-through. They're entered in both sides, freezer and cooler. And in the process room, just to give everybody the, the imagery here to know what we're talking about, I know we have bandsaw, we have complete grinders, you have tenderizers, you have a commercial vacuum sealer, you have at least... 20 to 25 feet of working table with butcher block on top of it to be for all the cutting and stuff that takes place. Yep. What am I missing that is also included in that processing room? Um, we've got the, you know, the commercial, the commercial sinks, uh, ice maker. If, it, if we need it, we have a 40 pound capacity hydraulic, uh, sausage stuffer, mm-hmm. you know, the, the big grinder that can, chew through a lot of meat real I want to say that bandsaw's been there for a while. The bandsaw and the grinder have been there for a while. Uh, we've got two commercial-grade, very nice vacuum packaging machines. So wow. we've got the whole nine yards. And I just want to remind everybody, what we're talking about is in a public high school in the state of Texas in the small town of Van Vleck that Clint and I were both, uh, we think, privileged to grow up and be a part of. And obviously Clint now is leading the program, and I'm a – a proud parent. But, you know, we mentioned it started in 1976, and we want to give some credit to the men who were very instrumental in this. There was an ag teacher named Mr. Elliser, M.H. Elliser, that was, for as long as, as far as we know, was the, the, the one who began this whole process. Right. And Mr. Elliser uh, was soon joined by uh, Mr. Walter Unkin and Mr. Dan Puska, who they eventually took it over from Mr. Elliser. Those were my two ag teachers, and Mr. Puska was pretty, I mean, he, he ran the man, the, the meat program. Uh, he's the one who taught us every part of what, you, what you're going to yes. describe. And then when you were in school in the early to mid-2000s, there was another transition. So, yes, sir, I was there at a really interesting time. When I got there, I think when I was a freshman, Mr. Unkin retired or had just retired, and then Mr. Puska, Dan Puska, retired when I was a sophomore or junior and I learned I learned a ton from him, and then uh, you know we had Mr. Bender come in and continued to learn a lot from Mr. Bender and a few of those other guys that came in. And, and when I was in high school, that's when I, I took ag like everybody else, and, and I just really took to that. If there was meat to be processed, I was in there learning it, and right. I was in there doing it. And by my senior year, I was right there alongside those teachers teaching some of those freshmen and younger kids how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, the, the stories we're telling, we can't claim credit in our current age for making them happen. We're, 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 we're on the, we're at the, the, the end of a list of a lot of men and women who, who helped build this program over the years. And 
I know you consider it just a, a humble privilege to be able to be the one that, that's leading alongside your other ag teachers now, but you are the one that, that centers in on the meat science part of it. Yes, and, and, I, and this thing kind of fell into my lap, and, and you know, God blessed me with this, this opportunity, and uh, it's something that growing up and up until I got this, you know, started this career, that I'd have never thought I was I would do. You know, it's not anything I went to college for. I went to college to become an athletic trainer, and I did that for five years before I realized, man, I, you know, I just kind of want to go teach ag, and I had, didn't even think teaching ag at Van Vleck or, or doing this was going to be what I do. I didn't know where I was going to wind up. Sure. And then I got that ag certification, and then it just so happened that a opening popped up that same year, and, and Mr. Bender was that was my ag teacher was still – teaching there and 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 uh I was fortunate enough that he had faith in me somebody with no experience or even the the collegiate no, no teaching no ag right, teaching right, experience right right he had the faith in me to 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 say that this is the guy and and let's give him a shot at this ag teaching thing and uh you know he retired after that year and it's kind of just worked out and and here I am well, and, and you come from an outdoor family. Your brother's a, a Texas game warden. Yes, sir. And uh, hopefully everybody met him on the, the good side of things and Tommy hadn't <laughs> right. had to cause any trouble. But So let's, let's jump right into that. The, the interest in this podcast, uh, us being an outdoor podcast, is in the state of Texas, we have a large number of whitetail deer hunters. And yes. every year I hear conversation and questions from different hunters who have killed plenty of deer or maybe they're just getting into it. Once you kill the deer, there seems to be this, so what do we do now? Now, many listeners probably have a long-term relationship with a meat processor, and we are thankful you have that, and we want to just come out and say, Texas is blessed with a number of excellent commercialized meat processors. There's a lot of family-driven units out there. There's even some large ones. They do a great job. But... You know, starting there at the at the hunt, when someone kills a whitetail deer, that's just the most common animal we can talk about. Mm-hmm. What are some of the pointers, or what are what are some of the things that you receive this meat in a cooler later? What are right. some things you wish every deer hunter would pay attention to, from the field dressing to the cleaning of the animal before they get it even ready to go to processing? You know. When you kill deer in in the state of Texas, man, this is Texas. It's hot, mm-hmm. especially you bow hunters out there. I, I remember last year I was bow hunting and I killed a that's, doe. That starts next week. Next week, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, but you know, it, you're liable to be hunting in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's it's hot, so you got to get that deer cleaned and cooled down as fast as you can. Sure. You know, it, it's one thing. That's where it starts. And some of y'all out there, if you or somebody you know says they don't like deer meat because it has this quote-unquote gamey flavor, oftentimes that's where it starts is there was a mishap somewhere in the handling of that meat. Right. On the cleaning rack, mostly. Yes, sir. Yep. And, you know, either on the cleaning rack or just not getting it to the cleaning rack in a timely manner. If, uh, you know, if you can get one straight to a cleaning rack, you know, do it. Get that deer cleaned, get it quartered, and get those quarters, you know, in ice as fast as you can, especially if it's hot outside like it often is, especially early season. Yeah, and so 
on ice. Uh, I know the some people are fortunate enough to be at a ranch where they have a cooler. Mm-hmm. We, we definitely would probably recommend the cooler. Sure, absolutely. Ice, I have guys ask me all the time, how long do I need to, when do I need to worry about deer meat on ice? Because the whole ice melts, the draining system, guys forget sure. about it. Let's talk about just when, when, when a cooler and ice is the method, and that's the method that most of us use. Right. What, what's the process there that just kind of common sense? Is there some rule of thumbs of how often you need to change the ice, how often you need to drain it to make sure that they're not just sitting Abs- in the water? Absolutely. And that's the thing. The in the water part's the key. So... Uh, bacteria, which causes that 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 off-putting gamey flavor, yeah. it needs moisture to survive. So the longer that meat sits in water, even if there's ice on top of that meat, you've got to keep that water drained off. So one thing that some people do, and I've seen it before, is they'll they'll have they'll put their meat and they'll cover their meat in ice. Well, that ice melts down and, and turns into water, which gets on the underside of that meat. Right. And then they just keep kind of stacking ice right. on top of right. it. And you've got this, basically you've got water at the bottom with the layer of meat and then a layer of ice. Sure. So that water is quite a few degrees warmer than that right. ice is. And it, it goes bad pretty quick. So yeah. you've got to keep that water drained off and, and, you know, the thing is, there's nothing wrong with keeping your deer quarters in an, a cooler of ice if you do that method. You'll hear people out there say, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ruin it, turn it gray, whatever. I've processed a bunch of deer, and, and really, and from being hung in a walking cooler or in an ice chest, and by the time it's all processed, it all looks and tastes exactly the same. Yeah, and, you know, I'm just wondering, this may be, a, I'm sure, some smart, person was smarter than us has done this it would almost seem that if you could put a rack system in the bottom of your cooler that kept the meat off the bottom mm-hmm. and you could add the ice on top so the water would actually drip down below yeah. the meat and keep the keep the meat suspended out of that water that could help but like you're saying fresh ice draining it constantly absolutely that's how we've done deer for a number of years if you have a walk-in cooler I do say that it does offer you a little bit simpler of a process. Sure. Um, but the you know the actual the actual cooler method is what most Texans do and have done for a long time. Sure. And I'll tell you what, it, at the beginning in that first twelve hours or so, a little bit of water is not going to hurt anything. Right. Okay. I mean, it's honestly if it's hot outside, it's going to help because that that. Super cold iced water is going to cool that meat off the absolute fastest. Now, once you get that meat to a cold state, that at that point you want that water gone. Sure, sure. And what we've done um, is transport the the animals back from the ranch. We get here to the house. We're fortunate enough to have an outside fridge, and so that's when I take my quarters out. I, I'll double check them, make sure that uh, the hairs off of them and and other things just yep. that it's clean as possible. If I don't debone them right then, which I typically do, uh, I'll just put them in the fridge, get them off the ice, get them out of the, you know, and just nope. take a, most white-tailed deer in Texas, you can do this. You don't have to have a huge fridge to do it. No. <laughs> and so, but, and so we've talked about the ice in the water. Is there anything just in the actual skinning, the, the gutting, the cleaning part that you see mistakes made? And when animals come into the action, it's like, dadgummit, why don't they take care of this? Yeah, I mean, just be careful and, and just pay attention when you're skinning and do your best to 
to not get hair all over that meat. And if mm-hmm. you do, it's not going to hurt a thing. If you have access to running water and you get a little bit of hair on it or, or whatever it might be, if you can it wash it off immediately before it sticks, most of that will come off there. Now, mm-hmm. once that meat gets cold and that hair sticks to it, you pretty much have to cut it off. Yeah. And the same thing, look for, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we don't all make perfect shots. It's just one of those things that happen. If you get any type of stomach matter or, or mm-hmm. gut material on that meat, get that off, you know, as fast as you can. Well, and I would also add, if there's any blood clotting on any part of the carcass, sure. go ahead and wash that off then. And it just, it removes it from the whole process. Yeah, it's going to be. And that's one thing a lot of people don't realize is, is you start cutting into into some of these in some some of these quarters and in that blood clotting it just spreads and spreads and spreads sure. and now you know legally uh if you say you shoot a deer in the shoulder and, and that shoulder's blown to bits legally you have to keep that shoulder so right. uh if that happens my recommendation is to you know tie it up in a trash bag to where it's not going to taint and, the rest of that meat and if you're out on a, a ranch in south texas like i've been I will tell you, a front quarter slides right into an ice bag just as easily. And yeah. so when you get your ice, keep those clear plastic bags because mm-hmm. it's a good way to store your ID heads, you know, yep. the, the and just different things. But you don't have to put it with the rest of meat is what we're saying. I mean, it can be in the same cooler, but keep it separated so right. all of that doesn't get on there. And so, you know, the, the field processing is just, that's where how good your, your link sausage, your deer steak's going to turn out. That's where it starts. Sure. And if you're, if you're new to this, go with a trusted, uh, experienced hunter. I'll tell you, I was teaching Wade how to skin a deer, and he would somewhat listen. But, man, we were on a ranch with a buddy of mine. They had a 16-year-old kid that was good at it. I'll tell you, my son listened to that 16-year-old kid a lot better than he listened to me. Yeah. But we're also living in a world now of YouTube, and there are so many good videos of just how – um, I'm not a fan of the multi-blade kits that everybody sells. I use one. It's the only Cutco knife I own, but it is a it is a animal skinning knife. Mm-hmm. And most of the hunters that and the guides that I have worked with over the years, they have one good skinning knife, and yep. they do the entire animal with that one knife. Yes, sir. I'm the same way. I keep. I keep one knife. The less stuff I've got to carry around with me, the better I am. I sure. keep one knife. You know, one knife in my pocket. It's in my pocket right now, and that's what I skin everything with I ever skin. Sure. And so let's talk about the other side of this, the actual processing. One of the questions that uh, some guys sent on Facebook when I told them we were going to have a meat processor on is, how can they save some money whenever they shoot an animal and they're taking it to the processor? How do they make sure that they're just spending the right amount of money on the right thing and I mentioned just a few minutes ago, and I'll let you speak into this. I think one of the easiest tricks of the trade is simply debone your own meat. Yes, absolutely. So the majority of your processors out there, and, and it's not something we do because we're, we're a little bit different, but the majority of your processors out there, whenever you take them that animal, they're going to they're gonna take everything you give them, and they're going to get a weight on it, and you're automatically, before anything happens, going to get charged a certain amount for the weight of what you give them. And you that's know, that's just to cut it up. Right. That's just to cut it up and debone it. And that's that's before you get anything made. Right. So my my biggest suggestion to, to save money at, at the processors is like you talked about, YouTube is a wonderful thing. Go watch a 20-minute YouTube video on how to debone a deer 
And, and after you bring that animal home, spend a few minutes deboning it. It's not hard. It doesn't take long. Get it deboned and then get it trimmed. And then at that point, you're only going to pay for, you're not paying for any waste. So right. if you take the whole thing, they're going to debone it. They're going to trim it. And then they're going to throw all that stuff away and save the good. Well, you just paid them to process parts of an animal you're not getting back. Mm-hmm. So if you can debone it and trim it, you're going to get back 100% of what you sure. took them. Sure. And another area that is very easy to handle that I don't, need, I don't even think needs to be sent to the processor is you can stake out your own back straps to mm-hmm. whatever thickness you like, cut the, the membrane off the back, and then if you need it tenderized, just get a tenderizing hammer. But I mean, sure. and, but all that can be done at the kitchen counter so, and not need somebody to right, be paid to right. do this. You know, a, a, lot of the, a lot of people that hunt also fish. And if you fish, you probably fillet fish. Yep. There is nothing different between processing a backstrap and filleting a fish. It, right. it's, a, it's the exact same method. Uh, and that's what I do is... I went to Academy and I bought me a game winner little hand crank tenderizer and it's what I do at my house. I'll, I'll fillet that back strap out and get it nice and cleaned up and pretty. And, uh, I just freeze them whole mm-hmm. that way. Cause sometimes there's other ways to cook them besides right. chicken frying them. So right. if I want a chicken fried, I can pull it out and slice it up and tenderize it and cook it in, mm-hmm. in really not lose any time. It's right. just as quick. And, then the big question with deer in the state of Texas, everybody likes sausage. We're down here in a, in a very heavily concentrated German and Polak and Czech community. Yep. We grew up, uh, I, I think my family has more Irish than anything else. But, yes, sir. You know, we grew up with this German-style sausage. And another easy way to save some money, and I tell you, I'm fortunate enough to be invited with five other families, we still get together and take a a family recipe, not my family, but one Mm -hmm. of theirs. And we do all the sausage making. We make 700 pounds a year. Just guys growing up, growing up doing it. They have the stuffers, they have the grinders, they have the smokehouse. But one of the things that I've learned is instead of buying your pork from the processor, if you know how much sausage you want made, you know how much deer meat you have after you debone it, you weigh it out or you just have a good rough estimate and you decide do you want 50-50, you want 60-40, you want 70-30, all of that is a all of that is up to you. I've had sausage on all those blends. I can say I've liked it, some of all of it and there's some stuff I didn't like. It wasn't cuz the blend, it's cuz whoever seasoned it didn't know what they were doing. Right. But when pork butts going for a dollar a pound, go buy your pork Cut it up just like you did your meat and go ahead and mix it together and you know exactly how much sausage you're going to have made. Right. And, you know, that kind of brings me to another point, and it's just kind of a myth, is is a lot of people think that once you freeze something, you can't thaw it out and freeze it again. Right. And, and that's – you can. One thing I suggest doing if you want to if you want to get sausage made every year – is wait till the end of deer season, you know, debone some deer. And then, you know, cause you might, you know, more than anybody else, how much sausage are you going to eat in right. a year? Right. Uh, if you debone that deer and, and freeze it, and I like to do it in five pound packages to mm-hmm. make it real easy. You can freeze it. And then at the end of the deer season, okay, I know that I want to make for me, this is what I do personally. Okay. I know I want to make a 50 pound batch of sausage. And I want it to be 60-40. Well, 
I've got my five-pound packages of deer meat. I can pull four of those out. That's 20 20 pounds. I make sure I got 30 pounds of pork. And there I go. I got the perfect... Got the perfect blend ready to go, and, and you know that's a, a mistake that I see people make sometimes is is they just they don't realize how much they're gonna get. They may take one deer, which doesn't look like a lot of meat, and they want the whole deer in the sausage, and then they're kind of shell shocked whenever they get back a hundred pounds of sausage, you and know? they get their price <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and and so when you're going to the processor, visit with your processor, look on their website come up with a plan it's real Mm -hmm. simple you know what your family's gonna eat if you're gonna eat the deer sticks if you're gonna eat the summer sausage if you're gonna eat a deer roast if you're gonna eat uh you know the different options you have and basically customize your order to what based on the meat you have available and like clint said put it aside and wait till the end of the season don't go deer by deer you may end up being a three or four or six deer family and so kind of know what you have to work with all of those things when it comes to processing deer are fun but i'll tell you one of the coolest things about the program there in van vleck is when you see eight or ten high school students around a cutting table and they're all deboning meat and you got two or three over at the bandsaw you get a group of them over at the the grinder and they're on their white lab coats with their hair nets because y'all still have rules you got to follow you can't just yes, let them sir. go in there and and that's a good point is, is some people tend to wonder like, hey, you know, how safe and how clean is sure. this deal? These are high school kids, man, and and, and I get it. I, I know high school kids can, I know how they can be, but uh, yeah, we make sure that we follow a pretty strict, clean, you know, cleaning hygiene routine. We everybody's got the sanitization, the sanitization, and all that. the hair nets, and and the gloves, and, and, and all I that. I mean, and the kids that are worried about fashion, let me tell you, they love the white meat coach and the hairnets. I mean, it's like, yeah, (laughs) they want every picture they can take in those. Uh, and one question that did come in and it's a great question. What kind of casings are used? I can tell you in our gathering that I get to participate in, we use all natural casings. Um, but Clint, could you kind of share how you break down your casing choices and where you get them so that, you know, listeners that do want to try it on their own will know how to do this. Sure. So for your regular smoked link sausage, like everybody likes, you have to go with the natural I hog agree. casing. There's no other way around it. You can go to Academy and find the other stuff or whatever, and, and don't even waste your time. You got to go with a natural hog casing for that. Uh, I buy all my casings and, and all our seasonings uh, from the Rio Spice Company in Huntsville, Texas. Good Mm family-owned company. I've known them since I was a little kid. And they're the best there is. And most processors, most good processors, are also using their seasonings and and stuff like that. Uh, But, yeah, for for regular smoked sausage, a a natural hog casing. Now, I... I prefer just out of out of the ease, and, and I don't mind it when I when I do like the little Slim Jim snack sticks. I get the uh, the collagen casings for that. Right. It's just way easier to work. The only other option with that is a sheep casing, and they're that's a totally different oh, product, man. Man, they're super hard to work. And, and some people say, well, they're better. Which yeah, yeah, it's still a natural casing, so I, it might be you know one percent better. But they're expensive as heck, and they're hard to work yeah, with. Yeah, and I mean that edible collagen casing on deer sticks—that's what the majority of the of the industry, I believe, was using them. I mean, would mm. you agree to that? I I think so. I mean, it just kind of depends. 
Sure. And then with your summer sausage, you use a different casing. Right. That, yeah, the summer sausage is a, it's, it's a non-edible casing, so you have to remove that. And it's a, it's a fibrous, it's made from plant fiber. Uh, you know, it allows that smoke penetration to, to get to the meat, but you, need, you do need to remove that. Now, one thing I do, just because, I, you know, some people might not know, is when we make summer sausage, I'll actually pull those sticks out and then let them sit in the cooler overnight to kind of cool off. And, and then before we vacuum seal them, I'll cut them in half because, you know, a stick of summer sausage. That's a, man, lot, of, that's so, a lot of summer sausage. That's a lot of meat. And so we, we'll, uh, we'll cut them in half, and then I'll actually pull that casing off uh, and we'll we'll take the the sausage out of the casing and, and put it in a vac seal bag, and and then nobody has to worry about about that. All they got to do is pull it out, slice it up, and eat it. Sure, and those are great on the boat and the deer blind and the duck blind mm-hmm. on the family road trip. I mean, <laughs> I think those go just about anywhere. Well, the deer processing is definitely uh, kind of the highlight. You know, come November when deer start coming in, you'll get the kids in there. You'll start teaching them. Usually by about the Thanksgiving break, you kind of see the ones that are kind of taking on to it, and you may yep. move them up to a little bit more responsible part of the area yep. and whatnot. But there's a whole other side of this uh, processing center that I want folks to hear about how you handle this. There at the Van Vleck Ag Department, they actually are able to process livestock as well. Now, let, hear me clearly. They are not open for business for commercial high-number <laughs> processing, but... A lot of times if a local farmer or ranger gets in touch with them, especially if it's a raffle or a benefit and an animal's being auctioned off, or especially um, for the Van Vleck Ag students that do show their animal, when their animal is sold at auction, the buyer has the can choose for the Van Vleck Ag Department to process that excuse mm-hmm. me, animal for them. Now, we've hinted around about this, but could you walk us through... I just want people to remember, this is at a, a public school. Sure. Uh, this, how does this take, because it hadn't changed much from the early 90s when I was in the program, but it has been modified a little bit. So with the renovation, walk us through whenever that trailer pulls up, let's just say a show steer. Okay. And so walk people through so they can kind of hear the story of how this happens. Okay. Well, I mean, they're going to, they're going to, we've got a pin on the backside of the ag shop and they're going to pull that trailer up to, and we're going to open the gate and Sometimes, depending on who it is, it might be the it might be the kid that raised that steer. Sure. And he'll still have a halter on. They'll walk it into that pen and kind of tell it goodbye, you know. <laughs> and uh, take goes, a selfie picture, <laughs> and right. Uh, he'll go into that pen, and from there we have a door that leads to it from the inside of the building, and we'll pull him into a squeeze chute. And uh, like I talked about earlier, we've got that that captive bolt right. gun that that's an instant dispatch of that animal. And uh, from there, we'll, we'll hang them up, and we've got the, the sunken pit like you talked about. They get hung over that sunken pit. And, and the, the, the winch is, what, a 3,000-pound? Man, I think so. It's, it's a big winch. It'll handle just, I mean, Yeah, we, we've pulled some 1,500-pound calves up on that thing sure. with, with no problem, you know. And it's on like a little trolley system. Right. And so the, the winch is actually mobile. Right. We'll pick them up out of the, out of the squeeze chute and kind of – roll them over over the pit and, and the thing about that that captive bolt stun gun i don't know how i'm trying not to get too graphic sure. here but it it allows the animal to, to have no consciousness but it allows the heart to continue to beat so right. we'll we'll stick that animal in that 
that heart will beat all their blood out into so, that sunken so, pit. And, and that's a, what I would call it just a natural bleeding out process. Yes. Yep. And By it's far a, the quickest and easiest way to, to get that meat ready to Sure. Go it's quick. Level. It's fast. It's ethical. And it's the same way that it's done in all of your major sure. plants. And then uh, after that, they get in. And I, I kind of handle that that part. But then after that, the kids come in and they get the protective gear on and a, and a knife and, and they get to skin in. And, uh, and do y'all still start the skinning while it's hung and then y'all lay it uh, down on the skinning? So on, on we'll the, have the, a... The, I call them skinning dollies. I don't know what the right. It's name. it's a It's basically a cradle dolly. Mm-hmm. A, a cradle on reel. They can yeah. lay them down upside down and then sure. the kids go to work. And they get around the hooves and then on down the legs. They do as much as they can with those big animals laying there. Like it's just easier. Sure. And then we move them to uh, the second the second winch, and uh, they'll they'll hoist them up and and finish the skinning and dressing process, and and go ahead and split that carcass in half. And on off that second winch is where our rail system is. So now you've got the two halves of that carcass that can hang on that rail. And the hooks are about an 18 inch hook. Right. So we have two different sizes of hooks for something like a steer. The, the hook is the, the shaft of the hook, right. I guess it would be is only, yeah, it's probably not even that it's probably only it's six or eight. Well, Cause it's a longer animal. Right. You have a bigger animal. Right. So if you had a long hook, they, they'd be touching the ground. We have a long hook for the pigs and smaller animals. And animals, by the way, the pigs go through the same exact process exact same, that you yes. just described. Yes, sir. All right, so you get them on the rails. They're split. What's next? Then they roll into our cooler. That cooler stays at 34 degrees all the time. And uh, uh, talking about a steer here, I'll leave that. I'll leave that in that cooler for to, for a dry age for 21 days, mm-hmm. and, and kind of depending on the schedule. We had some last year that went for 30. Wow. And and man, you talk about just a, it makes such a difference with that with that meat quality. Mm-hmm. And then after that, after that 21-day period for that steer, now if, if it's a real lean animal and they're starting to get kind of ugly on the outside, then we'll, we'll have to pull them down a little faster, sure. maybe, maybe 10, 14, something like that. Sure. It kind of depends on how much on the animal itself. Um, but then after that, after that dry age period, let them dry down. They'll, they get wheeled out into the processing room where they get broken down into, into the primals and then mm-hmm. on into your retail cuts and hamburger or whatever the customer wanted. Right. And back in the day, we had a wrapping table where everybody would be over there with uh, big rolls of one or half-inch wide masking tape and white paper. But now you all have the commercial uh, vacuum sealers. Yes, sir. Yeah, we have, the, we have the vacuum sealers, and we have a custom uh, sticker label that, that we use. It, it makes it easier, and it, and it makes it just a prettier product and last a lo- lot longer in, in somebody's so, freezer. So, so no more red, no more no red ink stamp saying not for sale. Right. So we, everything. we had that. My When I first got hired on at Van Vleck, we still had the old stamping machine yeah. that we had when probably you or I were in high school. Yeah. And then uh, my second year, I reached out and I found a lady in Arizona that makes the uh, the labels for us and ships them to us. That the label says Van Vleck FFA, not for sale. Oh, that's great! And and it's got what I've got a whole shelf of them with every different type of cut of meat you can imagine. So it's identified on the outside of the package. So yes, sir. When it's in the freezer and people are trying to figure out what they're looking at, they just got to read the tag. Right. Yes, sir. Well, and one question that uh, did come in, I forgot to ask you a little bit earlier, 
and this is real easy to get to. Somebody said, how do we know if we're getting our own meat back? I will tell you, at the Van Vleck Ag Department, they're a smaller operation, and there's no question that you're getting your meat back because it stays in one tub the entire time. If you're going to a commercial meat processor, you just got to ask them straightforward. Mm -hmm. Do you keep my meat away from everybody else's meat? And Clint, you made a good point. We were talking about this earlier. If if you turn your deer in on Monday and they call you Tuesday afternoon saying your sausage is ready, something's up. They're just probably not working that fast, you know? Right. Um, Ask lead times. And it is okay for you to ask the processor, what is your protocol? Mm -hmm. And they should be able to tell you from day one how they're going to handle your animal. So I think the mixing of the meat is almost gone. I I don't know of any processors that are currently doing that anymore. I know some used to do big batches of sausage, so they'd mix everybody's sausage together so they could just set up the sausage run on one day and just Mm -hmm. knock it out. To me, to my knowledge, I don't know anybody that's doing that anymore. Yeah, I think there's probably more in the world of processors there's more good than there is bad absolutely I, I think the not getting your own meat back thing is is a more of a myth than I think anything so. i think what happens to a lot of people that that are 100 percent certain that they didn't get their own meat back because maybe it doesn't taste right or doesn't look right or something like that i think there was probably a problem elsewhere and it, it Maybe a problem. It may be something that they might have mishandled the meat. Mishandled. Didn't realize it, or right? Yeah. Well, the thing about a meat processor, if you're not any good, you're not going to stay in business. No. There is way too much attention now to custom meats and the designer cuts. That if you if you can't handle if you can't do it right, you're not going to be around much longer. Right. And going back to that same myth of of not getting your meat back, I think what one thing that that happens to people is they'll take it they'll go to the Texas Hill Country and they'll go shoot a doe and they'll shoot her in the shoulder and they take that deer to a meat processor and they get back 10 packages of hamburger meat right. and they're quite certain that they didn't get all their meat back right. when they probably did especially if you did a double front shoulder shot both front shoulders were damaged so mm-hmm. you just you're talking you're talking at best 65-70 pound doe. Yeah, you're talking at like best that. 25 pounds of, of deboned meat at, at best, and sure. then that's not including anything that gets ruined from your from your shot. So I think you know people got to realize that a lot of times with these Texas deer, you're not going to get back as much as what you think you should. And I think that goes back to you know the importance of if you if you do learn to to debone. Uh, to debone that deer yourself and and put it in your freezer yourself, you'll start to realize, man, I just deboned a whole deer. Now I got four gallon bags of meat, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You, you kind of see just where everything falls. Well, man, I, you know, as we're getting ready for deer season, I hope you're hearing, uh, spend some, some time and attention to not just getting ready for the hunt. I think guys put a ton of time into getting the rifle sighted in and getting the new camo, the blind built, the feeders filled, the food plot in. And I think, the biggest neglect is what do I do when I kill one. And mm-hmm. so go in, make sure you have the right coolers, the clean ones. Make sure uh, some guys have moved to the, the vinyl gloves. They think that helps them. I, if you like those, great. Make sure you have those on hand. Make sure you have your knives. Make sure they're sharp. Just go in knowing what you're going to do once the animal hits the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think if folks think through it, it's a pretty simple process from there, and have fun with it. I mean, yeah. go to the meat processor. Have a conversation. They should love to tell you about what they're doing. Yeah, you know, and it's one of those things. 
I know for me, and Matt, we've talked about this before. Whenever, you know, this is just kind of me personally, and I think it's in everybody at least a little bit. We all have a desire to do that to a certain degree. You know, whenever I go hunting and I'm successful, or if I go fishing and I'm successful, I don't know, we, we shared a story about yeah. back over the summer. Uh, back over the summer, you know, I went snapper fishing one day, and we're, we're on the way back with the with the limit of snapper and i'm already thinking like man okay i've got my two snapper that's four fillets that's four dinners what am i gonna do and i think <laughs> I, you know and i do that with deer too i'm already thinking when it, when a deer hits the ground like man what this is yeah. this is i got some good stuff what am i gonna do with chicken this? fried jerky and link sausage are not the only three things that can be made with deer meat no and, and, and that may be a whole nother <laughs> podcast but maybe so but you know while i have clint on i, I just want Y'all to hear of another really cool thing that that Clint's got me uh, conjured into doing it. A couple of years ago, Clint called me and said, "Hey, he said uh, you like you like to barbecue, don't you?" And I said, "Well, yeah." He said, "You got that pit right." And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Does your son like to barbecue?" And I said, "Well, he's watched me do it. He's helped me do it over the years. Why do you want to know if Wade likes to barbecue?" And Tell everybody what you got us into in just in a couple of years, how we've stumbled into having two teams in the middle of this thing that are actually doing pretty stinking good. Yeah, so somehow we found ourselves in year three of competing in, in competing fairly well in the Texas High School Barbecue Association um, cook-offs. And, man, this thing is, is something like I never thought it would be, and we've kind of developed something there at Van Vleck that's really – it's really catching on. It's and fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, we started a couple years ago, and I'm thinking – I'd heard about it, and, and I'm kind of thinking, oh, man, high school barbecue cook-off. How hard can this be? <laughs> and and I'm thinking, you know, we've got some kids that can cook a little bit, you know, well, Matt. And we're in a community where every other house has a trailer pit in the backyard. Right, right. So I was thinking three years ago or two years ago, you know, okay, I've got Matt here. He can barbecue. I've got his son. I've got a few other kids. It's high school kids. I know I can barbecue pretty well. At least I think I can. Yeah. We, it's high, how good can high school kids be barbecue? So we kind of threw a little team together, and we went up to White Oak, Texas, and we If got, you don't know, that's a five-and-a-half-hour <laughs> drive pulling an enclosed trailer pit and a Suburban full of high school boys. Right. Yeah, we show up, and there's 30 teams, and we got smoked. We were clueless, man. <laughs> you know, the and just to describe the format, each team – is no more than five high school students. They don't have to. It doesn't have to be through the ag department. Some do culinary. Some do uh, student council. It just needs to be sponsored by a school. Mm-hmm. And then they give you a twenty foot by twenty foot section. They rope it off. And when they say get out at six o'clock in the morning before the meat enters that area, all adults have to be out of that deal. Yep. And it is kids' hands only. And so we're standing on the outside, the sideline, if you will, pointing talking they're taking pictures of it coming and showing us what it looks like um but this last year uh and then well covid shut shut us down that first year we go up and get our clock cleaned in white oak we come home with our tail between our legs and about an hour out of the town we're figuring out how we can improve it lo and behold the boys are in the suburban with miss porter they're talking about how they can improve it we've started something (laughs) here well year two comes along and another group gets together and uh, Charlie Hill and Marcus Moss, and other guys a lot like myself, love to barbecue. They got their boys, and another uh, 
couple fellas, and we ended up taking two teams this past year and our second year competing. Uh, went to the Katy Regional, and by just a, a – I'm not going to call it a, a <laughs> flop because the boys worked hard, but we walked out of there with two invitations to go yeah. to the state competition. Like like you said, you hit it, you hit the nail on the head when, when it happened. Like you said, it's like sliding into home – and the catcher's got you beat, but he drops the ball yeah, when you cross I mean, the plate, man. And, <laughs> and so we, we drive out to Lano, Texas. There's 60-something teams coming. There's only three hotels in that whole town. Uh, we took the kids to Cooper's and let them see what barbecue really is supposed to taste like. And at the end of the day, both teams placed in the top ten in something. You know, one got chicken and, and one of their ribs. And so we're, we just showed up. I'd say there are some schools that have absolute programs at this. There are some schools that take mm-hmm. this more seriously than their state football. Yep. Uh, yep. And, and the cool thing is it may be an inner city school that has three trash can smokers, and it may be a little old country school whose grandpa happens to own a catering business, and they're going to pull a 32-foot rig in there. But the, the, pies. But the minute, the minute that fire starts, it don't matter. It don't matter. Who owns the rig. Nope. They're not cooking. It it's don't matter all how all kids. Now, it doesn't matter how good of a cook the uh, the adult is. It's all kids. And another thing, this thing isn't broken down. You know, two a three a four a five a. It's everybody against everybody, yeah, and it, it is some it, tough competition. It's five kids and uh, the camaraderie I've been impressed with. The work ethic of these kids at these competitions I've been impressed with. Uh, the idea that our boys can literally put a barbecue team patch on their letter jacket just still kind of baffles me. (laughs) I mean, how redneck can we get? But that's the cool thing is if you're in another town and that sounds fun to you, check out the Texas high school barbecue association. Talk to some people at your school because it's all, it's an open invitation. You got to go through the protocols and the processes to, to be a part of it, but it's a very well ran organization. And we've been very impressed just getting to know the folks and the volunteers to put this together. They work hard and it is a it is a proven commodity in the state of Texas. Right, and like like you said, it's all volunteer ran, and those people work very hard for, you know, absolutely nothing except the enjoyment because they know how important it is and how much these kids are getting out of a program like that. Yeah. And so they volunteer their time, and they drive all over the state of Texas on on their own weekends off to to put on these these competitions, and they do a really good job at it. Well, cool. Man, I hope you've enjoyed today just hearing about the, the processing facility at the Van Vleck Ag Department. Like I said, it's been going on since 1976. Clint and I both uh, got to be students and enjoy it in our high school time. I'd say that's where I learned to barbecue at the very first. Uh, Dan Puskin, those guys really just told me, taught me how to throw some seasonings together and cook it right, and hey, it turns out pretty good. But it's still active today. Uh, the renovations that the Van Vleck ISD has just gone through didn't leave the ag department out. I think the ag department is in better shape than it's ever been in. The facilities are really just impressive. Uh, we have three outstanding ag teachers and Clint Johnson, Brian Brown, and Mr. Dumas Nellis back with us. We're glad you guys are on yep. board. So thanks for listening and look forward as our next conversation on Texas Podcast and Blast. We'll have a uh, – I should say he's a high-ranking official with a national ammunition manufacturer that's going to talk about why it's so hard to find bullets in these times we're in, and uh, we'll be bringing that to you soon. So, Clint, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Man, I appreciate you having me. And uh, continue to share and listen, guys. Uh, we do this to, to get good news about the outdoors. 
in the great state of Texas out for everybody to enjoy. So thanks for listening, and once again, uh, we'll see you next time on Texas Podcast and Blast. Take care. We're down Texas. We're down Texas.